watching Battleground with Nick Cater on the ADH Network. Uh, I'm from the Menzies Research Centre. We'll be bringing you smart conversations for smart people streamed direct to your smart TV or your smartphone. And the particular little technological miracle you'll need for this is the ADH app. You can watch the show on that and it's easy to download. Even better, it's absolutely free. Just go to ADH.TV or the Apple or Google Play stores. Well, tonight on Battleground, we're going to be trying to answer the frightening question, has Woke won? With author and spiked contributor Joanna Williams, who will be joining me later from London. Before that, I'll be, I'll be catching up with Amanda Stoker to swap notes on some of the burning policy questions of the day. First, however, I want to weigh into a contentious debate that's barely begun the debate about enshrining an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Constitution. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese seems set to take this to a referendum without ever telling us exactly what we'd be voting for and against. He wants to do this with a minimum discussion outside the cloistered and political quadrangle. Clearly, we have to do more to ensure that Indigenous Australians have the opportunities that the rest of us enjoy. We're failing badly on that count, which is why I'm prepared to give The Voice an open mind at this stage until Anthony Albanese decides the time's right to share the details, as he must, if this is going to have any chance of succeeding in a referendum. But on what we know so far, I've got some serious questions. Beginning with this one, the obvious one. Why do we need an Indigenous voice in Parliament at all? I mean, what can a voice to Parliament tell us that 11 Indigenous voices in Parliament cannot? Nine of the Indigenous voices in Parliament were elected at the last election. Every state in Australia, except Queensland, has an Indigenous voice in either the House or the Senate. The Northern Territory leads away, as it should, with three. There are Indigenous voices in Parliament from across the political spectrum, representing Labour, the Liberals, the Country Liberals and the Greens, plus an Independent. Among them is the powerful voice of Senator Jacinta Price. Jacinta Price is a Walpiri woman from a remote settlement of Yundamu, 400 kilometres from Alice Springs in the middle of the Tanami Desert. Price wasted no time in making her voice heard in her maiden speech. She took a chainsaw to the prevailing narrative of Indigenous victimhood and colonial oppression. She dismissed the pious ritual of welcome to country, saying she'd had her fill of being symbolically recognised. Take a look. Our aim should not be to blame our current democratic institutions for all our perceived failures, but to encourage individual responsibility of all Australians. Where we fail is where we encourage others to believe responsibility for one's own life can be avoided and the disadvantage can be charged to another. We need to focus on nation building, not nation burning. Well, Price was described as a conservative firebrand in, in one new newspaper, which I suspect is a badge she'd wear with pride. But since the newspaper in question was the Sydney Morning Herald, it probably wasn't meant as a compliment. But look, here's the point. Whether you agree with Price or not, her arrival in the Senate is a victory for diversity. And by that, I mean true diversity, the diversity of something that matters, diversity of opinion. Her forthright maiden speech highlighted an inherent problem in the voice to Parliament idea. Whose voice will it be? Will it be a voice like that of Price, one that prefers practical measures to symbolic gestures, one that seeks equal opportunity rather than equal outcomes? 
one that rejects separatism, respects the Australian flag and resonates with unabashed natural, national pride? Or will it be an angry voice like that of Lydia Thorpe, the Indigenous Green Senator who despises the Australian flag? A voice that doesn't recognise Her Majesty the Queen as our rightful head of state. A voice that proclaims that all white people are irredeemably racist. The voice of a woman from the inner city Melbourne suburb of Collingwood on a salary of 200 and something thousand dollars a year, plus perks, who says she entered Parliament to infiltrate the colonial project. Well, Price and Thought between them have taught us an important lesson. Indigenous Australians disagree, just like all the rest of us. And the best place to resolve those disagreements is somewhere where everyone's entitled to speak their mind in a respectful way. A place, in other words, that looks to me a lot like federal parliament, an institution that's been peacefully settling arguments between Australians for 121 years. For the voice to parliament's campaign to succeed, it must persuade the Australians that a single voice speaking apparently from a single mind truly represents the rich, diverse range of perspectives of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people. Second, we must know who will hold this voice to account. How can we stop it being captured by the woke intellectual elite to serve their own peculiar interests? I mean, after all, it's happened before. Who will be empowered to bring the voice to account if it goes off on a frolic of its own? How can we prevent mission creep? Because every government body, indigenous or not, is prone to this kind of provider capture unless it's held to account. Let's be blunt, who has the power to sack the voice? If, he, if it fails to do its job and fails to represent the indigenous constituency it's supposed to serve. Say what you like about politicians, but if they go off the reservation, as they sometimes do, at least we have the power to sack them. Joining me from Brisbane is my regular guest, Amanda Stoker, former Commonwealth Assistant Attorney General, and now a distinguished fellow at the Menzies Research Centre. Uh, look, Amanda, I'll, I'll confess, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. In fact, I'm not a, a lawyer of any kind. So, look, can you help me get my head around this proposed change to the Constitution? Because I don't think I'm the only one who's confused. What do you think, what, what do you understand by this voice to Parliament? What exactly would it look like? Well, Labor's proposed some really general words being put into the Constitution that would empower the establishment of an Indigenous voice to Parliament. But because of their generality, it is in essence a blank cheque in order to be able to set up um, something that could take really any form. We really don't have that detail from Labor just yet. And so we can start with the big picture problems and implications of this. First, in principle, I think it is wrong to divide Australians on the basis of a racial attribute in the founding document of this country that's designed to set up our institutions for all. I think that's a really dangerous precedent to set and not one um, that we want to see as a guiding principle for our future. But there's also practical problems that come with it too. Indigenous people are not a homogenous group of people. You know, even in our parliament, we've got Jacinta Price, Linda Burney, Lydia Thorpe and others, but you couldn't get three more different views on what's needed to advance the lives of Indigenous Australians than you would from those three example women. Indigenous people don't speak with one voice, and so the idea that there can be a voice for an entire population of people is 
really very unrealistic. And then there's, you know, how do you choose it? How big yeah. is it? Is it elected? Is it appointed? Mm. What should be its effect? Advisory? Should it bind government? Albanese said um, it would be a brave government that didn't follow its recommendations, but does that mean the voice will have an effective veto over executive government? These are really, really big questions, and that's before you even think about what should they be advising on. Well, look, as I understand it, the government could have introduced something like this simply through legislation, simply through passing it through Parliament, but they've chosen to put it in the Constitution for whatever reason. What are the pitfalls of going that extra step, of locking it in to our, our founding principles? Well, the problem that comes from putting it in the Constitution is um, from the perspective of someone who supports the idea, it makes it harder to achieve. Um, from the perspective of someone who's really cautious about the harm this could do, once it's in, it's really inflexible. You can't change or adapt in the way that you might have if it was set up by legislation. And so the expert panel that was appointed by the coalition government to consider this issue um, suggested as one of the ways forward a legislative option so that as we sort of iron out what works and what doesn't, um, or even as we come to understand the dangers of dividing people by race, it's something that's easily adjusted. You don't get that if it's in the Constitution. The very fact that Albanese has jumped straight to that constitutional mechanism, though, speaks to the fact that this government seems to be all about political gestures, all about feelings, but it's not about substance and it's not about the practical ways that we can improve the lives of um, the most disadvantaged people in our communities. Um, it also invites a whole lot of problems, you know. We've already heard from the migrant community, well, where's our voice? Mm. Um, mm. The LGBTI community might well say, we want a voice too. Women generally might say, where's our voice? People with a disability. I mean, where does this stop? Um, the far better principle on which to grow Australian society's strength is to focus on what unites us from the inside, the um, characteristics that make us all good human contributors rather than um, the colour of our skin or the colour of our hair or any other randomly selected genetic attribute. So, look, Albanese's approach seems to be, OK, look, you know, just give us a in-principle yes or no and we'll fill in the details. I, I, my sense is... That's just not going to work. I mean, the electorate is actually a whole lot smarter than that. Australians are not going to give him a blank cheque, surely. Look, I hope that's right. Um, but the thing that Australians should keep in mind is that as he asks for that general principle authority, he's actually giving a bucket load of scope mm. to a future High Court to interpret whatever they think those words of generality mean. That could very well mean you've got a high court that can strike down laws on the basis of insufficiently considering the uh, views of a voice, for instance. Um, you invite judicial activism when you put in very general words to the Constitution and say, well, we've got a principle, we'll let the details get worked out by the court later. That's enormously dangerous um, and it's unaccountable. You can't hold anyone accountable for what judges do. Far better that it be in the hands of politicians who every couple of years you can tell them precisely what you think. Now, I've heard some, um, some fantastic maiden speeches in the Senate. Uh, one, Senator Amanda Stoker, I, I think, gave not a bad speech, as I recall, from that day. 
But look, Jacinda Price's maiden speech was just something amazingly special. Uh, and I think this could be a game changer in this debate. Uh, yes, yeah, sure, look, she's a backbencher and a very, very new one. But because of who she is, where she comes from, and the constituency that she represents, I think she commands enormous authority in this. She's got effectively skin in the game, to be quite literal about it. Do you think, you know the dynamics of federal parliament, the dynamics of the party room, will this intervention settle the debate, at least on the coalition side? I think it will be enormously unifying on the coalition side. Um, Jacinta's speech was an absolute cracker uh, for being straight shooting, honest, but also raw about the challenges that um, the people in communities like hers face. Um, and she really beautifully drew out the need for practical, pragmatic solutions that matter on the ground rather than fluffy gestures that make elites in the cities feel good but not keeping little girls safer, not keeping women safer from domestic violence, not keeping men away from drugs and alcohol, not keeping food on the table, not keeping people in a job or having the dignity of starting a business. She's so real, so sensible um, that I think she will have huge weight in the coalition party room. And I am really optimistic that her contribution to the debate more widely in our Australian community will help people to see that we've got to do more here than just virtue signal about how much we care about Indigenous people. What we really need to do is get on the ground and deliver what they need. Um, it's not about symbolism. It's about the nuts and bolts of everyday life. Yeah, I, absolutely. Look, look, in the few minutes we've got left, Amanda, uh, look, with everything else that's been happening in Canberra, I think some people may have missed the implications of a decision that Mark Dreyfus, the new Attorney General, made recently, and that was a decision not to appeal the landmark Love versus Tom's decision. First, could you remind us of that precedent, of the precedent that was set by the High Court in the Love versus Tom's case, and uh, why the Morrison government, and, and you were closely involved in this, why the Morrison government decided it had to be appealed? Yeah, I think this is a real, um it's been deliberately done quietly by the Albanese government. They don't want Australians to see what they've done here. The Love and Tom's decision was one that came from the High Court and it put forward a really quite disturbing authority, I would suggest, for um, ordinary Australians. And that's the idea that in, there always used to be two categories of people in this country, um, citizens and aliens ones who have citizenship and ones who don't, but they've got permission to be in the country. Um, the High Court said there, there could be a new category, non-citizen, but also non-alien. And they linked it to the idea of indigeneity. That's really worrying because in effect, it outsources a big part of the decision-making about who gets to be present in Australia without the ability of the government to regulate their presence. Um, to Indigenous communities. And so in the case of Montgomery, an appeal was launched to the High Court um, by the coalition government because Mr Montgomery was born in New Zealand. He moved to Australia at the age of 15. His mother was Australian. His father was um, of Maori background. And he was, despite having no Aboriginality in his background, accepted as part of a... 
uh, an Indigenous community. And so this is the idea that somebody who's got no Aboriginal background, um, wasn't born in Australia, isn't an Australian citizen, can nevertheless, despite committing violent crimes, not be allowed to be subject to the migration laws of this country. Now, yeah. that doesn't pass the pub test. It's no. abhorrent, really, um, and it needed to be the subject of a rigorous appeal. But Labor have quietly shuffled it out, content with that to remain the law in this country. Well, look, we're out of time. We'll have to come back and revisit this case. The idea that uh, somebody who's not an uh, Australian citizen can become culturally adopted by uh, an Indigenous group here and therefore be above the immigration legislation is just something which is uh, too troubling for words. Look, Amanda, thank you very much for joining us once again and look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Well, as you might have realised from the name of this show, we're not going to duck a fight in what some like to call the culture wars. Uh, some have been telling us at the Mendes Research Centre that we should stay well clear of some of the contentious topics that you'll hear about on this show, but we didn't call this battleground for nothing. The culture that made this country the best place in the world to live, in my view, is under strong attack by leftist, illiberal, arrogant activists who just hate the joint. And uh, we have no alternative but to fight back because we've been in this fight long enough to know what happens if you don't. They don't back away, they'll just carry on trashing the place, changing the meaning of words, teaching our children that men can have babies, forcing footballers to wear pride jerseys and bend the knee, lighting our, our shrines to our war dead in technicolour, pulling down statues, making up Aboriginal history, etc., etc., etc. If we can agree on a name for this, um, I guess we should call them the enemy in this culture war, uh, that sums up their many causes, I, I think it would be terrific. Uh, because the old labels, the post-material progressives, uh, the intelligentsia, they don't really cut it. Uh, the new ones, the new labels that come up from time to time, that the laptop class, the economically illiterate atheist LGBTQI plus plus minus hashtag lobby, are, they're amusing, but only for a while. So for now, I'm afraid, we're just gonna to have to use that ugly word that's entered our main dictionaries five years ago, but it's now common currency, woke. My next guest, I suspect, is no more fun, fond of the word than me, even though she's written a whole book about it. Dr. Joanna Williams began, began her career teaching English in secondary schools, went on to become a lecturer in higher education and academic practice at the University of Kent. She's now Head of Education and Culture at the UK-based think tank Policy Exchange and a regular contributor to Spiked. She's the author of four books, Consuming Higher Education, Why Learning Can't Be Bought, Academic Freedom in an Age of Conformity, Women Versus Feminism, and her latest, which has the horrifying title, Why Woke One. Joanna joins me tonight via the miracle of the internet from London. Welcome, Joanna. Um, Tell me, please, let's start. Hi, Nick, it's great to be with you. Good, good that you can join us. Tell me, please, please tell me that that title, Why Woke One, is just a, a marketing man's idea of a good title, uh, that you don't actually believe that Woke's <laughs> actually won. 
<laughs> well, I mean, the title is, is How Woke One, and it kind of really details the strategies that, that people have employed and how uh, a professional managerial class, if you like, has, has taken over our elite inst our institutions and, and taken their own values with them into those institutions and, and uh, kind of pushed them onto the rest of us in society. Um, you know, I, I actually do think it is important that we recognize that these people have won to a very large extent. And I don't say that in any way to revel in their victory. Um, their victory horrifies me, in fact. Um, but I think we need to face up to the challenge that's ahead of us. Uh, unfortunately, we can't just wish it away. I think people who want to push back against woke values, and I, I hope everybody does, because I think they're the most regressive, horrible values we could impose upon society. Well, we kind of need to be honest about the scale of the, the fight ahead of us, if you like. Um, so that's one reason why I wanted to say that woke has won. Um, but also the other reason why I think it's important to have that title is because the people who it seems to me are most woke in society and most powerful and most able to impose their values um, actually try to deny the power that they have. They try to play the role of victim, uh, whether that's based on skin color or their gender or uh, their sexuality. They try to find some way um, to, to claim that they are actually the underdog, that they are the victims, all the while imposing their ideas and their ideology on the rest of society. So by actually saying you've won, I think it, it kind of pulls the rug, I hope, a little bit on their victim mentality. But I, I certainly don't think it's a won for all time. And I really think this is a fight that, that can be challenged. Yeah, well, look, woke has certainly made inroads. It's impossible to deny that. But here, here's the great paradox. You, you say in your book, and I quote, Few people, who few people describe themselves as woke. There's no political parties promising voters more woke. Uh, and yet in Australia, as I expect in the UK, uh, the woke-non-woke -woke divide has really become the main fault line in politics. The old divides, left versus right, workers versus bosses, blue-collar versus white-collar, unions uh, versus bosses, whatever. Uh, they don't really cut it anymore. Indeed, at the last election here, Joanna, back in May, we had a number of independents elected to Parliament whose sole purpose, it seemed to me, was to uphold woke ideology, uh, doing more to fight climate change, being nice to LGBTQ people, giving recognition in the constitution of Indigenous people. You know the kind of thing. Uh, but at the same time, the main parties div are divided. It, over exactly those kind of things. So am I overstating it? Is that now the new fault line in politics? No, I think you're absolutely correct. And certainly this is something that we very much see in the UK as well. Um, people probably aware of the uh, leadership race currently underway to be the next leader of the Conservative Party, the next British Prime Minister. Uh, one of the front runners in that campaign, no longer in it, but was up until very recently, one of the front runners, a woman called Penny Mordaunt. Um, she has essentially been a, a trans rights activist in the British Parliament um, for the past few years. Uh, she was one of the main 
same people pushing through the Gender Recognition Act, uh, trying to make it easier for people to change their um, gender just on the safe, though, without having to undergo surgery, seek out doctor's appointments, medical referrals or anything like that. Uh, and she did come very, very close to, to being our next prime minister. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right that this completely transcends left-right divides. But also I think you're right that this is the real new dividing point in society right now. Um, I think some people recognise that a little bit. Um, but I, I, what worries me is that far more people do still think that these are just trivial issues, that this is that the culture wars is somehow not, not important. And, and really, we need to kind of wish all of this away so we can get on to talking about real politics. Unfortunately, I think this is real politics for the time being. This is where the most important mm. political debates are taking place. Yeah, well, we'll let's look at some of the things that, that Woke has done. Um, they've radically redefined racism, as you explain in your book. I mean, my generation, and, and probably yours too, we were taught that skin pig pigmentation was almost the least important thing about you. Uh, and now it's the most important. It's the thing that defines you and defines your life trajectory. Uh, and all this has been overlaid with this narrative of anti-colonial anti-colonialism and the profound conviction that countries like Britain, the US and Australia uh, are not just flawed in some ways, but evil and illegitimate. I just want to show you, I wouldn't normally bore a, a guest with a, an extract from the Australian Senate, which could be a pretty dull pace. But this week, uh, there was an incident, a senator uh, with, with Linda, Linda, Lydia Thorpe, an indigenous senator uh, who represents the Greens. We'll play the video now. I, Sovereign Lydia Thorpe, do solemnly and sincerely affirm and declare that I will be faithful and I bear true allegiance to the colonising Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Senator Thorpe. The colonising Queen Elizabeth II. Um, what did you make of that performance? Well, it uh, seems a, a kind of slightly odd place to be making that particular protest. Uh, but I think the, the kind of the trashing of tradition, of institutions, and ultimately of, of his history, uh, of national history in whatever way it is, uh, presented, you know, I, I think have all the hallmarks of woke thinking. And um, I guess one thing that, that particularly disturbs me, I, I actually published a report on this uh, just in the past couple of weeks with the Centre for Independent Studies in Australia, is this kind of trashing of tradition, trashing of history, because I think it leaves uh, young people in particular, and I'm, I, I really am very, very disturbed about the generational divide that's emerging as well uh, with the woke kind of split. Um, it leaves them kind of rootless. It leaves them without any um, uh, kind of... Uh, grounds for common cause with each other, but, but any capacity to identify in any positive way with the nation, with the idea of a nation. And, and you think it's only the nation uh, that does have the capacity to unite people to transcend skin colour, um, uh, sexuality, gender, all the other superficial things of identity politics. They can all become or be overcome in the, the idea of a nation. Whereas if we completely trash the nation, trash national identity, um, trash our history, then we leave young people without that, that kind of anchoring. Mm. Yeah, and look, I'm going to row back a bit from my 
original contention. Yeah, I mean, I can understand why people do think that woke has won because it's everywhere. It's Orwellian at times and it seems to be infiltrating more and more institutions, including the police. Let me play you a clip that was sent to me this week of the woke police in action in the UK. This level, because I don't understand. I posted something that he posted. You come to arrest me, you don't arrest him. Why has it come to this? Why am I in cuffs? Because of something he shared, then I shared. Because someone has caused, obviously, anxiety based upon your social media page. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've struggled to believe that. But look, it, it looks authentic to me. I don't know the background, but it does look authentic. If, if, if so, then here are the British police arresting a man for sharing a social media post, for posting something that had caused somebody anxiety. How could that happen? I mean, I can tell you from a UK perspective, this is authentic. It's been reported on in all the national newspapers here. Um, it, it does, it, it beggars belief. I mean, this is now saying essentially that hurting another person's feelings is a criminal offence. Obviously, we do know under the rule of woke that this only hurt, only works one way. If, if I read something that hurts my feelings, I doubt the police will be coming knocking on the door. But, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's truly, truly Orwellian. It, it's absolutely terrifying. And as to how this happened, you know, I think this is a very interesting thing because we have had a number of politicians and we've even had senior leaders within the police force itself coming out and saying that this shouldn't be happening. Uh, I mean, obviously, what the point they're making is that the police should be on the streets dealing with real crime, rape, murder, burglary. You know, that that's what the police should be dealing with, not knocking on people's doors. This is a waste of police time, but it's the police wasting their own time. Time and and it, it's truly bizarre. But but the scary thing about the fact that politicians and senior police leaders are opposing it suggests that this has kind of taken on a life of its own then mm. within the police force itself, uh, and it it makes it far more difficult then to to actually stop. And and all I can assume is that the police, a bit like teachers and nurses, uh, health professionals, have kind of been captured at the training level. You know the the people who are instructing them on what it means to be a good police officer. The people who are providing that initial police training are, are teaching them the wrong things, are teaching them that this is their job, that, that this is the most important role that they serve in society today. And that view has been taken on board within the police force itself. Uh, so again, it, it does just suggest we've got a real battle on our hands to actually root this out. Yeah. Staying on the, the issue of race or going back to that, the Black Lives Matter movement, Joanna, in the United States is very quickly became the defining woke cause. Uh, and it's ugly. I mean, sure, we'll make the required caveats. None of us want to see lives lost because of heavy handed policing. The death of George Floyd was unforgivable, etc., etc. But the Black Lives movement is much more than that. It's a radical movement imbued with critical race theory. It's opposed to capitalism. It's opposed to the nuclear family and a whole lot of other things which uh, decent Americans would rightly object to. Nonetheless, it's become enormously powerful. Um, the taking of the knee uh, quickly took over the English soccer establishment and uh, the fans don't like it. We've got a clip of that. There's the England team taking the knee and the crowd seemed to be 
unified in opposition, booing it. Um, woke critics, of course, will say that's proof that all English soccer fans are ignorant at best and uh, racist white supremacists at worst. Are they? No, absolutely not. And uh, I guess that seems like that actually made me feel quite positive because they show me um, that Woke won't win ultimately because I think that the problem with Woke is that it's a very elite preoccupation and as soon as it comes in contact with the masses, if you like, for want of a better word, whether that's through the ballot box or even on the football pitch, people show that they don't like it. Um, people react in that negative way and ultimately that does bring about change. Um, it's been announced just in the past couple of days that Premiership footballers, I can't remember how it's been put, it's certainly not been put that this has been dropped all the time, but we've been told that this practice of taking the knee will be used, I think it's kind of more selectively or or will be um, more open to individual uh, teams and players deciding whether they want to do it or not, which obviously raises a number of other problems, um, but it does just show that, that they can't uh, sustain these work practices when people people themselves show how much they object to them. You know, and the interesting part about this, I think something that's really noticed, uh, there are, of course, people who make good money out of wokeism and they've got a financial incentive in keeping it going. One example from here, just staying on sport, uh, there's no reason at all why you would have heard of the Manly Seagulls in England. They're, they're a, a rugby league team uh, based on the northern beaches of Sydney. Uh, now, last week there was a notorious incident, you may have seen it publicised even in Britain, where uh, the, the, the idea came up that they'd all wear uh, pride jerseys, rainbow jerseys for this special round, and the, the jerseys were issued and whatever. Uh, the problem was they didn't actually tell the players, and seven of the players, uh, now known as the Manly Seven, uh, were, were good, uh, good Christian folk from the, um, from the Pacific Islands and said, we're not wearing them, we'd rather not play. Uh, the whole thing backfired. But for me, you know, the most telling thing about that case is when somebody asked, well, who came up with the idea of this in the first place? It was the company that makes the team's jerseys. They just saw a marketing opportunity in making a whole new strip for this special pride round. And, uh, and indeed they did, and they sold loads of copies. I mean, this is just cynical, isn't it? I mean, it, when it, it, it the, the, the naked... Uh, Profit, profit motive becomes so obvious. Well, I think you're right. It is cynical and there are lots and lots of people making money out of this, but it goes even more deeply, I think, than the obvious examples. I mean, Ben and Jerry's ice cream is well known mm. for its politicising, uh, how it's quite possible to politicise cream and sugar to quite the extent that they do. I mean, truly beggars belief. But I think that's really just the tip of the iceberg. If you look at every major corporation and even not so major corporation now, they employ layers and layers of diversity officers. I mean, universities do this to the nth degree. They're practically more... Uh, equality, diversity, inclusivity officers, uh, then there are academics actually teaching students. And you create these layers of people whose actual job and income um, is premised upon the fact of there being racism, sexism, um, transphobia in the workplace. Uh, so they're not incentivized to actually solve 
problems that might arise. Because as soon as they turn around and say, well, actually, do you know what? We don't think there is racism in this university. We think everyone gets along really well and, and black students are doing just as well as white students. Then they're out of a job. Um, and, and clearly that's not in their best interest. So instead, what they have to do is, is perpetuate the cycle and look for ever smaller, ever more insignificant instances of racism, et cetera, to, to justify their own salary, justify their own position. And obviously what that does is it, it creates this kind of grievance culture. It creates this, this sense of, of white people being oppressors, black people being victims. It sows division. It sows dissent amongst people. It, it's really, really problematic. But, but so many people have got a financial stake in making sure that this continues. And you make a point. I mean, it really is a it's a sort of make work scheme, if you like, for people with uh, hopeless degrees, isn't it? And so there is a, a sense in which they, they they need to be employed somewhere, and they're employed in these jobs, particularly often by, you know, government-run organisations where taxpayers pay the money for these diversity and inclusion officers, etc. Um, how can we stop this? I mean. Corporate wokeism, you write about that in your book, it's just become a major force and very quickly. Why has that happened? Absolutely. And it's not just in the corporate sector, as you say, it's in the UK, it's absolutely endemic within the National Health Service and within the civil service. So we're having uh, police coming, knocking on our doors for sending tweets that might offend people. We're actually paying for those police officers out of our taxes. You know, I'm paying for the NHS that employs more diversity officers uh, than you know what to do with. And yet I can't actually get to see a doctor within three days of falling ill. You know, th these things are absolutely ridiculous. But but yeah, it's, it's absolutely endemic within the private sector as well. I mean, the, the change that's needed is, is cultural, it's huge, it involves people standing up for themselves, making our voices heard, saying we don't want this, exercising um, our, our views at the ballot box at every available opportunity. And, and I think it really is only then when, when our elite realise quite how unpopular they are, uh, the extent to which ordinary people have absolutely no truck with this whatsoever. Again, just to reiterate the point you made at the beginning, not because people are racist or sexist or bigoted in any way whatsoever, precisely the opposite. It's because we're not racist, we're not sexist. We've moved on from those outdated beliefs. You know, we, we couldn't care less I couldn't care less what somebody wears. If a man wants to wear a dress, you know, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Just don't call yourself a woman and don't try and go in the ladies' toilets, you know. Um, but, but I think people, society is more tolerant, less prejudiced, less bigoted than ever before. And it's because I think people recognise that, that we realise that, that the race hustlers, if you like, are the people trying to divide us are the people calling themselves, you know, people who are woke and coming from the top of society. Uh, and I think it, it's just by, by calling this out continuously uh, that we're going to bring about the, the kind of cultural change, a much deeper cultural change that we actually need now. Well, I mean, as you say, I mean, it's, it's, it's self-evident that, that this is not the, the popular will. It's the will of a few people. So why... Are politicians, why do they seem so unable to stamp it out, to, to do what people want to do and just get this stuff out of their lives? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, to some extent, I think that just the will is not really there. I mean, one thing that concerns me about certainly British politicians, I suspect it's probably the same in Australia as well, is you wonder who are they Who are they actually serving? Who, who are they representing and whose interests have they got at heart when they go into Parliament? Um, because it certainly doesn't seem to be my interests and the interests of most people I know. Um, it seems to me that certainly since the advent of social media, when our politicians get into Parliament and make their little speeches, they're much more preoccupied about how this plays out on Twitter, how this plays out on social media, how many retweets it'll get, how many likes it will get, uh, how it will be reported in the mainstream media than they are about the response from their constituents back home in some kind of northeastern town in the UK uh, that they hope to go to as little as possible. And, and I think that that's become a really, really big problem. And, and it means that the actual will to push back against some of these culture wars issues is just not really there. Well, OK, uh, look, in the brief amount of time we've got left, a, a glimmer of hope. And, and the glimmer of hope I'm going to offer you is this, ADH-TV. Uh, spiked online, which you write for, another independent publication, which is completely independent of mainstream media. Uh, I guess even the book, you know, published by Spiked Online, an independent a a publisher for a book that you probably would have struggled to get published in the mainstream. Uh, surely this is an indication this battle can be won. We have the means to fight back and the means to talk back. And if we, if we seize that opportunity, we can turn the tables. Yeah, I mean, this is a real glimmer of positivity on the horizon, and I really hope this is the case. I guess one thing, sorry, I know you want to end on a positive note, but I think one thing that worries me a little bit is the potential for balkanisation, um, that we kind of just become increasingly divided in our media consumption. But ultimately, you know, I, I think that's not, if that does happen, that's not our fault. That's a fair response. Um, people need to hear and see their own views represented in the media and all these independent channels, channels um, give a, give a, make that much more possible. Uh, you know, I guess it goes back, um, thinking of English history, to the days of the levellers, the kind of pamphleteers that people had in the uh, 1600s, 1700s. And uh, I think that that's an exciting prospect for the future, po promise of change. Well, thank you, Joanna. I know you're not going to give up, nor spiked, nor are we. So uh, be sure to check out Joanna's new book, how Woke One, the elitist movement that threatens democracy, tolerance and reason. Available at most major online book retailers and, of course, from Spiked Online. Thank you again for joining us from London, Joanna. Thank you. Well, here at ADH TV, we take diversity and inclusion very seriously, which is why we want a diversity of views and we want to include everyone we can. So this is a Your Say section, so if you've got something to say, please send me an email at nick at adh.tv. Agree, disagree, doesn't matter. We just want to hear from you. Uh, this week I wrote an article for The Australian on conservatives and the way they've lost their religion, uh, which got a very mixed bag, a lot of response, much of it not quite sure that I was on the right track. Paul says, our society is founded on Judeo-Christian history and principles. It's therefore completely reasonable that the Lord's Prayer remains in our parliamentary traditions. Conservatives must stand firmly in its defence. Max says, I always feel a touch of amusement when, after any, when any mention is made of Christianity that might have any benefit for our society. The secularists come charging out like bull ants from their hive to deny it completely.
Ian says uh, the Lord's Prayer helps to keep a sense of reality before politicians. They're reminded each day of their Christian heritage, injustice, family, values, human, humanity, cultural diversity, sound government structure, education, medicine and social welfare. They're also warned about sin and temptation and evil. When we as a nation move from this foundational prayer, we do so at our peril. Amen to that. And Henry says politicians should most definitely be made to recite the Lord's Prayer and ask for forgiveness for their trespasses. But as history has shown, they trespass plenty. plenty. Incidentally, I, I argued in the column that we should be going back to the King James Version of 1611, which uh, translate trespasses as debts. Forgive us our debts. I'd like to thank all of you for tuning into Battleground. It's a production of ADH TV. It runs every Friday at 8 p.m. To join me, Nick Cater, as we discuss the hot topics of the week with some great global minds. And if you'd like to get in touch, don't forget to have your say, email nick at adh.tv. And also you can head over to the adh.tv app to stream Battleground directly to you and on demand. Well, thank you very much, and I'll see you all next week.